HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Bonnie Plants, bonnieplants.com. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Today with Anna Jones. Anna Jones. Anna Jones. Uh, either way, it's great. <laughs> Anna. Anna the Jones. Way, of I the Engli- I think it's the American English way as well. I'm just <laughs> terrible with names, but I do know a modern way to eat. And I- I've been so smitten with this, uh, not because I had so many parallels, uh, parallels to your story, um, What's funny is your book is about almost a dare, a trial of vegetarianism that completely converted you into what you are today, um, into this mode of thought, but also elevating a cuisine that was once kind of, can I say shitty? Yeah, yeah, (laughs) I I think that's fair. Yeah, I I know in the U.S. you'd go to a restaurant and they say, oh, our vegetarian entree is some kind of pasta covered in cheese Mm -hmm. and some steamed vegetables on the side. What was that? like in the UK? Um, it, it sounds pretty similar. It sounds a pretty similar experience, to be honest. Um, there was a lot of um, kind of sort of cheesy mushroom sort of scenarios, a lot of risottos that didn't have much love. You know, if you were really lucky, you might get sort of a couscous stuffed pepper. But I mean, that was pretty pretty out there. Um, so, yeah, I think it was very much the same experience if you were if you were a chef and you were trying to cook for vegetarians, it was either throw a lot of dairy and cheese at the problem or, um, yeah, or a lot of carbs. Yeah. So ha- growing up in the UK, mm-hmm. um, it's funny, having April Bloomfield on the last show, we already yeah. kind of uh, um, talked about the preconcepts of what British cuisine is. Yeah. Were there preconcepts in your household or were you outside of that box? Um, no, there definitely were. And it's funny, me and April are both, both from Birmingham, both 
both good Brummie girls. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'm sure that we had a reasonably similar sort of upbringing. I know she was talking about salad sandwiches and Heinz salad cream, and that's definitely something that I associate with. Um, yeah, I sort of always say that it's, it's, I grew up in a sort of standard meat and two veg family, really, where, you know, dinner was potatoes, a vegetable, and, you know really a bit of meat so yeah it was that was what I experienced and that was yeah I mean that was, was kind of the older way of thinking and cooking at that mm, time but mm. your your mother was a little bit more modern in in how she adapted food uh you know to your meals talk about that yeah yeah she was I think my mom grew up in the 60s and 70s and um she was sort of a, a pretty liberal modern woman and I guess a bit of a feminist you'd say um and yeah I, I think for her she felt like cooking was a bit of an infringement on her liberty and her kind of you know power as a woman she didn't want to be cooking the dinner every night so um, cooking for me was something that, that, that I, I learned really. Mum always gave us healthy food. She was, you know, down the health food shop all the time and trying to persuade us to eat, you know, sugar-free jams instead of normal jams. So she definitely had that in mind. But there was never that kind of long, languid kind of enjoyment of cooking, which is something that, you know, I definitely have sort of engaged with at a pretty early age. Yeah, I, well, I'd like to talk about that, that empowerment Um being a woman in an industry that was primarily men and, and still is primarily men, what made you want to go into that workforce? Um, greed, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've always, I've always loved eating. I've always been pretty greedy, and I always wanted to learn how to cook stuff myself. I think before, you know, when when you're younger and your diet is perhaps under c the control of your parents, I knew that the only way for me to kind of have the things I loved, be it chocolate mousse or a cupcake or whatever else, was for me to make them myself. Because if I'd made them, mum and dad would be like, "Oh yeah, sure, have those." Um, so I think that was my way of kind of. Um, sort of investigating food I guess I guess a little bit and um, yeah I I think it was just a pure passion for food that led me into it I never thought about whether it was a male or a female dominated industry and I, I think the passion for food came much earlier on I don't think I ever considered a career as a chef or a career as a cook I came through quite a sort of academic kind of route and you know when I sort of encouraged my teachers to ask if I could do something a bit more creative they told me why don't I why don't I give economics a try <laughs> <laughs> and economics didn't mean numbers economics was in the kitchen and it was almost housewifey yes? oh no, no 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 I mean economics oh numbers. okay like, yeah that, it's not home economics <laughs> yeah, no. it's it's worldly economics yeah they thought that was like the creative side yeah. of, of learning which um I'm sure economics can be creative but definitely yeah. <laughs> it wasn't the creativity I was after so where did you find yourself with that spark of creativity in the kitchen prior to going into other restaurants um, yeah, I, I, I kind of made a jump, I guess, when I was about sort of 24. I was working in a job that I kind of didn't really connect with, and I'm quite good in that I have a sort of quite useful characteristic when I'm not engaged in something. I am incredibly, incredibly lazy. So I was just drifting and knew that there was... Th th there was, you know, no way I could continue like that. So I, 
I um, read an article once in the Sunday paper that said, you, you know, you determine your calling by which bit of the Sunday paper you turn to first. Um, and for me, it was all the restaurant, always the restaurant section. And, you know, this kind of spark went off in my head. And I knew I knew then that that was kind of my creative force. And that kind of little girl who'd been making chocolate mousses and cupcakes had kind of been ignored. Um, so that was, I guess, the moment when I reconnected with that and reconnected with, with, with that creativity. Who was Jamie Oliver at that point in your life? Um, so he was just a guy who was on TV um, telling a lot of bad jokes. Yeah, he was still the naked <laughs> chef, right? Yeah. He was still the naked chef. And, and whilst I kind of love what he was doing with cooking, you know, he, he was kind of, he was really boisey and he was always out with all of his mates. And, you know, he wasn't, wasn't the kind of incredibly cool and, you know, pioneering guy that he is now. Um, so yeah, I, I I actually connected with him and enrolled on his cooking course at 15, which is an amazing restaurant in London. Um, so for me, he was kind of, I guess, he became my mentor and my boss, really, um, for the next seven or eight years. And in that cooking, well, it was called training program, correct? Yeah. During that time, what did you learn and where did you go from there? Well, I learned... A huge amount. I have to say, I don't think there's any amount of money in the world that could buy a cooking a cooking course like that. It was like cooking on fast forward, and it was at an amazing time when Jamie's business and profile was kind of just blossoming. So, kind of everyone wanted a piece of him. So, we were taken to the sort of you know Chianti vineyards and being given bottles of wine that were we had absolutely no right to be drinking <laughs> um we were you know sort of seeing the first green grassy olive oil coming off the presses the the, the chefs just had an absolute free reign in the restaurant to order exactly what they wanted um and it was you know it was just a bunch of friends really cooking together so it was it was an incredible time I mean, you, you talk about creativity and to be at a point of such inquiry, you know, uh, having minds that want to know more and want to do more with what's around them. Uh, I mean, you couldn't have moved to a better field at a better time. No, I think I think it was really the, the turning point, I think, especially in London for food. You know, the, the restaurant scene now compared to sort of, you know, 10 or 11 years ago when I started cooking is utterly unrecognizable. Um, you know, I know you were speaking to, to April Bloomfield when you spoke to her last week about, you know, how British food has had such a bad write-up. And I think the last 10 years have, have been just so pivotal in that change. Um, but, yeah, it was an incredibly exciting time to be, to be working in food. And for, I think, what, the last seven out of ten-ish years, mm -hmm. you were still working with Jamie, but under another capacity. You weren't necessarily in the kitchen all the time, but more on the creative side of things. Yeah, absolutely. I was kind of working on his on his personal creative team, so helping him with anything he did to do with food, be it commercials, be it kind of um, cookery books, be it developing recipes. And, you know, the, the, the work that I really loved and connected with was, you know, a lot of his campaign work, the amazing work he did, you know, with the school dinners campaign in the UK and then over here and, you know, campaigns about sort of provenance um, of meat and chicken and eggs um so yeah it was it was a real education in kind of both sides of the food world because whilst i was you know sort of poncing around with lettuce leaves making you know pictures <laughs> look really pretty for books i was also going into sort of you know families houses where they were feeding their kids you know just chips every night of the week and chips i mean fries 
sorry, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, every night of the week, um, you know, and actually trying to sort of persuade them to eat asparagus. So it was kind of real top to bottom stuff. I mean, but you weren't going in there with your styling tricks and putting no, asparagus no, 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 uh, no, no, a creative no. way on the plate. <laughs> you, you were trying to educate them. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And my, my, my job during that time is really to be sort of Jamie's food eyes and ears. So, you know, his schedule obviously has kind of got crazier and crazier. So when he couldn't be around and he couldn't engage with the people that, you know, he really wanted to help, that was that was kind of my role. So, you know, what's funny is, is again, I, I did the same thing as you uh, went vegetarian mm -hmm. kind of as a trial and forgot. Mm -hmm. uh, or, or kind of even more so challenged myself to keep being vegetarian. Yeah. When did you do that? Because you didn't tell anybody at first. No, no, I didn't tell anyone. Um, mainly because I was in the company of a lot of chefs who um, at the time thought that cooking kind of trotters and snouts was, I mean, the ultimate possible thing that you could do. Um, it was when St. John's in London was, you know, the, the kind of go-to restaurant, and that's a Fergus Henderson's amazing nose-to-tail restaurant. Um, so, yeah, it just... When I thought of telling someone I was vegetarian, it just felt like I was, you know, committing a terrible, terrible culinary crime against the world, you know. So I kind of kept it under wraps for a bit because I wanted, um, I wanted people to... I wanted people to know about the food I was cooking from tasting it rather than from the rhetoric and the kind of, you know, there's a worthiness attached to the word vegetarian, which I just think um, needs to be shaken off. Yeah. So, I mean, in, in becoming a vegetarian, did you already have go-to dishes that you had cooked your whole life that were vegetarian or were they dishes that you converted from this is a meat dish now made to be a vegetarian? Yeah, I guess there's always been like vegetarian dishes in my life. I grew up, um, you know, I started my culinary career learning about Italian food and the Italians are, you know, in incredible with vegetables. I spent quite a few years in the kind of Chianti fields in Tuscany um, cooking there. So, um, yeah, that, that side of things I kind of always knew. But I think when I stopped kind of putting meat and fish at the center of the plate my whole world of cooking opened up I, I there was a, more of a fluidity to what I was making I was cooking based around sort of seasons based around moods based around how I was feeling based around the kind of type of cuisine I wanted rather than you know the piece of meat I had in the fridge that you know I knew I had to use before tomorrow so um yeah it it became much more creative, and I think that has what has, is what has kept me really engaged in sort of a vegetable-centered way of eating. Yeah, and you had such a great community because at that time you got to collaborate with the likes of Yotem Odalengi, yeah. um, Sophie Dahl, and uh, the fabulous Baker brothers because they too um, kind of look towards vegetarianism or vegetable-based dishes as a way to highlight... Uh, um, you know the bounty of the surrounding areas but also their skills as cooks absolutely yeah and i think um i think um Yotamotolengi is just such an incredible example of someone who's putting vegetables at, at, at the forefront and, and flavor and layering and that kind of really important salty sweet sour bitter kind of you know flavor profile right at the front of his cooking and you know no one really noticed that his his vegetarian book plenty was in fact vegetarian and i think that's what's always been imp really important to me in my work and in you know um you know the book we're talking about is um is that 
I didn't I wanted people to get sort of 75 percent of the way through and be like hey I don't think I've seen like a meat or fish recipe here I wanted it to feel generous you know visually as well well can I I want to read your promises and I'm hoping you stuck to these things too. Be Be embarrassing if I haven't. Yeah. But if if you read these aloud, I hope you do this as well and realize that your ideology hasn't kind of gone adrift. Um, And that this holds true for both vegetarians, even vegans, um, as well as omnivores and carnivores. Uh, And, if you didn't know, there's no mention of what dishes we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, but here it goes. Um, your promises are it can still be indulgent and delicious, uh, make you feel good and look good, leave you feeling light yet satisfied, help lighten the footprint on the planet quick and won't cost the earth, uh, and it can still impress your friends and family. Again, uh, without knowing that this book is vegetarian and reading those things, you would never make that assumption. But if you did know it was vegetarian, you would never expect those things. Yeah, I think so. I think that, you know, for too long, kind of vegetable-centered food has kind of, especially in the UK, I think you guys, you know, as always, or over here in the States, are a few few years ahead of us. Um, but, you know, for, for too long in the UK, it was the kind of territory of kind of, you know, weird kind of hemp trousers and mung beans and, you know, sort of, pink and yellow painted cafes um so yeah i think you know it is okay to make and and it is is real and honest to make those promises about food and i think that's why people you know haven't ventured into into making vegetables the center of their of their meals you know much more often because they are scared of leaving the table you know still starving hungry you know or they are you know scared that they're going to have to go out and buy 50 million weird ingredients and that's that just doesn't have to be the case well two things one when you said hemp and mung beans it sounded like the lyric (laughs) to some wonderful british mod song i didn't know about (laughs) um it should be one absolutely but what what i love about this book is you know, there are a couple quick little things that you can, you know, start uh, kind of putting into your repertoire, like replacing nut butters uh, for butters and cookies, um, using coconut oil for buttering toast, adding quinoa millet to morning oatmeals. Mm-hmm. Um, that that are just, you know, slight, they're, they're entry points yeah. in, into the grander scheme of what a modern way to eat means to you. But then the best thing about this is often you read an introduction, often you see recipes and head notes, but there's there's not the tutorial or almost infographic that you give on how to build a recipe. And can you tell me what it's like to, to be in the mind of a chef or be creative in that way and, and strip away the intimidation of what it means to put a recipe together? Yeah, sure. Well, I felt that was really important when I was writing the book, that it was beyond, you know, just sort of really prescriptive recipes because some nights you just don't have, you know, the right things in the cupboard and you want to just do something yourself. So I always think about... um, how I put, when, when I think about how I put a recipe together, I often think about my brother, who's a musician, and um, I think about how we hear a song in two completely different ways. He kind of 
I'll, I'll just hear a melody. I might strain and hear a drum beat. You know, I might be able to hear the bass line if I'm really trying. Whereas he'll, you know, there will be a hundred different things he hears in just the guitar. You know, it will be the distortion, the amp, you know, the, the, the feedback, maybe even the type of guitar. And I think that, that some people's brains are wired for food and some people's brains aren't. And that's kind of what I tried to communicate in all of these infographics is how... I go about building a dish and how that kind of change in creativity when when I sort of took the normal building blocks away um, changed how I cook. So I guess usually I start off with, with you know, a vegetable or what, what I want to be the hero, as I call it, or the main event. So that, that could be something like butternut squash. Then I'll, I'll think, right, OK, well, what do I want to go with that? Maybe I want kind of like a backup flavour, whether that's kind of some spinach or, you know, whether that might be, you know, another vegetable, like some, you know, beautiful baby leeks or something like that. Um, then I'll kind of think about about how the dish is going to feel from a sort of satisfaction point of view. So, you know, I'll, I'll try and put some some kind of protein in there or I'll put a grain or some pulses or, you know, even some torn up bread, um, you know, possibly, you know, some kind of bean curd or something like that. Um, and, and then I'll think about, you know, that that's the kind of nuts and bolts there. And then I'll think about layering up the flavours. So... I cook with loads of lemon. I think, you know, I use it as a seasoning, really, just as much as I would salt. So then I'll think about the citrus notes. I'll think about the spices and how I kind of build those. And then going on from that, you know, I'll, I'll think about kind of, um, you know, the sweetness, if there needs to be any sweetness, if there needs to be any sharpness, you know, if there needs to be vinegar or anything, you know, slightly bitter like radicchio. And I'll just try and make a kind of visual map of this of this dish in my head. Um, and then, then once I'm happy that all of those things are going to balance out, I'll, I'll think about texture. I'll think about, you know, what is that going to feel like to eat? How, how am I going to be sated by, you know, on a textural level as well? So if the butternut squash is quite soft, you know, but I've got some pearl barley in there, I know that that's chewy and that's going to sit nicely next to it. So I might need some crunch. I might want to throw a handful of seeds or, you know, some delicious rye breadcrumbs or something like that on the top. And then the last element is always how it's going to look because I think there's so much more to being satisfied and sated than just, you know, flavour. So, you know, and in my sort of day job when I was a, a food stylist, um, that was obviously a big part. So it'll be just saving a few little elements or adding some herbs or something that just really makes it sing on the plate. See, it's funny. You, you think you and your brother uh, think differently, but you just think uh, conversely. Um, whereas, <laughs> you know, he, he'll, he'd listen to a song and deconstruct it, and you were the composer that puts it all together. And all these elements are, are like putting a band together and picking what style and what bandmates you need and instruments. Absolutely, and What yeah. you want to look like, what venues you want to play. And I only hope that band is called The Modern Eaters. <laughs> And I yeah. expect an album in the next few years. Yeah, and who's going to be on lead guitar? I mean, these are big decisions. Excellent. Well, ponder that, and we're going to take a quick break. You've Great. been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back.
Could an app be the answer to a better garden? Absolutely. It's the new free app, Homegrown with Bonnie Plants. Note, track, and photograph your garden's progress. Personalize your weather and reminders. Get variety info, grow guides, hands-free dictation, and more. The Homegrown with Bonnie Plants app. The sharpest tool in your garden. Download it free on the App Store. Hey, and welcome back to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here again with Hannah Jones of A Modern Way to Eat. And we were just talking about those visual maps, you know, how, how to put together a recipe. Um, <laughs> when you're vegetarian, when you first become vegetarian, um, there is that quest. It's mm-hmm. like a vision quest, but it's to find first and then make the best veggie burger possible. (laughs) (laughs) What was that journey like for you? Uh, It was a long one. It was a long one, I've got to say, but I kind of had a bit of of a fight (laughs) with myself, really, about whether or not I wanted to put a veggie burger into into my book because I felt like it was kind of everything that was kind of great if it's good and everything that was kind of a little bit sort of stayed and old-fashioned about vegetarian cooking but after about 30 or 40 attempts I came up with something that I felt was so delicious it deserved a place there and I actually think it's a really important thing to have some dishes that feel really easy and feel really achievable and feel really relatable to people because for, for a lot of people you know eating you know with vegetables is something that's very new and a bit, you know, a bit of a leap and a bit confusing. So if you can make that step as easy as possible, then I think a veggie burger is the way. So yeah, um, for me, it's lots of mushrooms, it's dates, it's tahini, it's all of those kind of layers of flavour which go into my really hungry burger that I am, um, yeah, yeah, that I absolutely dig. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm surely <laughs> going to be making that. Um, you know. <laughs> I was thinking that there might be nuts in there because when I went over to the UK and, you know, I was vegetarian, uh, no one had anything to serve me. I'd go over to Edgeware mm-hmm. and eat halloumi sandwiches. Yeah. And that was and the limit amazing. of it. They're fantastic, but you mm. can only survive on so many halloumi sandwiches. Yeah. <laughs> and then there was nut loaf. Yeah. Something I had never encountered before um, and may never encounter again. <laughs> <laughs> but what, what is nut loaf and how do nuts play a, a big part in this book in your life? Yeah, well, nut loaf is uh, sort of the generic vegetarian offering in, you know, if you go for a Sunday roast, which is, you know, a British institution, the vegetarian offering will be a nut roast. And I have to say, like, anything in food, they range from deeply diabolical to, you know, amazing. They Essentially, they are loads and loads. They should be loads of delicious roasted caramelized vegetables and onions, then with some amazing nuts mixed together with lovely herbs. So they're, they're like a, a sort of vegetarian meatloaf, I guess. And and they should be a thing of joy. My mom makes an amazing one, um, but quite often they are deeply lackluster. So, um, but yeah, nuts in general, I play a huge part in how I eat. I think... Um, you know, whenever I say I'm, I don't eat meat, people say, oh, but how do you get your protein? I mean, that's like the major question. And I think that, you know, I don't worry about that too much because I believe that if you eat, if you cast your net as wide as possible and eat a variation of grains and pulses and nuts and seeds, then, then you're going to be fine. So it's not like I ever really, really think hard about that. But 
nuts are something that I incorporate into lots of dishes. I'm, I love making kind of all kind of quirky kind of pesto type things and, and dressings and sauces using nuts. I love making things with cashews. Um, you know, my brother and sister are vegan, so, you know, the old cashew mayonnaise gets whipped up, you know, quite frequently. So they're a big part of how I cook. Yeah, I mean, there are also all those add-ins to your smoothies, like, what is it, uh, a lucuma, um, matcha powder, hemp, bee pollen, spirulina. Yeah. Um, everyone thinks of these things as supplements, mm-hmm. not, not not as stars. Do they have any inherent flavors to them? Absolutely, yeah, they really do. And I try never to use anything you know either for it's purely for its nutritional content or you know purely because it's kind of a a fatty food there are you know lucuma or i'm never quite sure exactly how to say it but that's got a lovely kind of caramelly flavor and and maca almost has like a multi-flavor and actually if they're blended with the right things they they mean that you you boost the sweetness of perhaps like you know if you're having a green smoothie which we all know can be kind of like you know jaw clenchingly sort of healthy sometimes a couple of tablespoons of that you know is is doing wonders nutritionally but also on a flavor level is amazing yeah but you never say to yourself oh i'm really craving some spirulina today no i have to say (laughs) (laughs) not so much but i the that kind of like greeny kind of chlorophyll flavor of green vegetables i do crave and it's not spirulina but it's things like kale it's things like greens and you know i I, I do crave that some mornings when I have, you know, a, a juice that's filled with all that lovely green stuff. It does. It peps me up. But also I, I love the flavor of it. And if you don't love the flavor of it, then, you know, why would you have? I, I just don't understand why anyone would eat no, anything they didn't agreed. love the And, you know, back back to the nut loaf where that, you know, was the vegetarian staple. Um, and then people worry about protein and like, oh, you look a little jaundicey. Mm, you look... Mm. If you eat worldly, if you eat globally, I, I never feel like that's true. And what's wonderful is that you you have been able to see a lot um, through your life, through your works. And mm. there are influences of, like, the Turkish fried eggs. Yeah. Uh, I love fried eggs. But this elevates it, you know, the creaminess of the yogurt and, you know, the herbs and, and the spices. Mm. Um, elevate this into a dish that not only is transportive, but also just kind of so different from what you're used to and and so enlightening at the same time Mm. and i feel like you do the same thing with your your dosas um how has travel kind of affected uh your your cooking lexicon yeah i it it is affected it hugely um there's definitely some areas of the world that i i go back to and i lean on a huge amount italy that i mentioned earlier um you know i just think they're complete geniuses with vegetables i love a plate of pasta and um yeah so i go back there a lot south india those kind of coconut curry leaf mustard seed flavors you know i I could eat every meal of the day um you know incredible vegetarian food when i've traveled through sort of bali and indonesia but also in london i guess as sort of you know here in here in new york it's such a melting pot of flavors in my you know within within a five minute walk of my house there's two turkish play shops you know about five different asian shops so i feel even if i don't travel um I'm kind of traveling by just walking down my local market street anyway, which is such a joy. No, I mean, 
talk about the pedestrian ingredients in something like gado gado, you know, or however you say that, yeah. that Indonesian dish where, of course, it's a satay sauce, but if you read everything else that's in it, mm. what is it? Uh, potatoes, tofu, French beans, sugar snap peas, broccoli, bean sprouts, uh, cilantro, shallots, yeah. uh, fried shallots at that, yeah. the most important part, <laughs> fried shallots. Key. Nothing seems Indonesian per se. No. I think that's the incredible and wonderful, you know, mesmerizing thing about food, which is what what got me excited about it in the first place is that, you know, <coughs> the, 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 the pattern and the order in which you put stuff together can, you know, the ingredients can be the same, but the pattern and the order and the delicacy which you handle them with can have, you know, manifold results, which is just, yeah what keeps me going back into the kitchen <laughs> yeah i mean i feel like it's very true um of your galette uh it is a seeded galette i believe mm-hmm. what yeah. pistachio and squash pistachio yeah and and sunflower seeds is the base and then squash yeah yeah sometimes i i wonder whether or not you're coming from a cooking angle or a styling angle yeah <laughs> but it is such a stunning thing you know and and for a galette of those kind of elements, uh, mm-hmm. you'd think it tend towards the savory, but there are certainly sweet highlights to it, too. I think there are. I think I definitely have a bit of a sweet sweet tooth, and I think that sweet is something that perhaps isn't you know, incorporated into, into savory food very much, and that doesn't mean that it's going to you know, taste like a dessert, but I think in order to balance out you know, the bitterness sometimes or the sour, sharp you know, lemon juice, sometimes you do need a bit of sweetness, and quite often with vegetables that comes from the natural caramelization and roasting process that happens. Um, so so I think, yeah, a lot of my dishes are put together, you know, from from a flavor perspective, first and foremost, but also from 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 a perspective of how they're going to look, because, you know, there's th- that's such a huge part of how I eat and I think how we all eat. And I think that cross section are honey roasted radishes. Yes, yes. Yeah, I love those. And, and, and actually, they have been. They are the recipe in the book that most people think, oh, my God, they're going to be disgusting. I don't like radishes. They're the stuff of my childhood. Or roasting radishes, you're spoiling them. These are a wonderful, fresh ingredient. But they are, you know, it, it completely transforms them into a, into a utterly different thing. And I think that's the amazing, you know, amazing skill of vegetables, the, the, the amount of different ways of cooking them and the, you know, the wonderful ways in which they change. You have this list of vegetable underdogs. Yeah, yeah. I almost feel like there should be playing cards, or they're like <laughs> yeah. the bad news bears of, of this book. But yeah. turnips, chard, uh, celeriac, Jerusalem artichokes, rutabaga. Um, why, why are they disliked, and what, what can we do to like them more? I think they're disliked just because there's not an understanding of what to do with them. I think once they're cooked, you know, amazingly, people absolutely love them. I make kind of, um, you know chips out of turnips or rutabagas is that the right term here um you know with with kind of a bit of smoked paprika oh that's the swede thing that i learned from april swedes or rutabagas rutabagas yes swede chips yeah exactly so um yeah with smoked paprika and some smoked sea salt and you know kids absolutely kill for them people don't actually understand what vegetable it is so i think there's just a few brilliant kind of um cheap 
and achievable vegetables that that are getting completely ignored and I don't know if if the same trend is happening here but in the UK people are kind of lapping up this whole local veg box thing so everyone gets delivered a box of vegetables on you know a Wednesday or Thursday and you know because of the way the farmers work there is always you know a kohlrabi or a swede or something else in there so I just really wanted to kind of push push these underdogs up to the forefront get them at the front of the band rather than the backing singers you know <laughs> it's all about the music <laughs> yeah. I swear you know the modern eaters will happen and I, I will play bass if you need a bassist that'd be amazing but these visual maps again uh, you, you not only say well here's a recipe for this but you were talking about the texture of, of a swede chip and now from now on rutabagas be damned they are swedes um <laughs> But texture is simply one of the facets that you can kind of change per, but the iterations underneath each of these vegetables in this book is just fascinating. Um, even kind of composing a salad as well, the kind of analytics that goes behind making such beautiful and creative dishes, um, I think is what sets this book apart because, yeah, you can make a recipe. And I, I love plenty. I love Odolenghi's books. But to be able to then make your own recipe and make mm. it as beautiful and as delicious as you want it. You're giving people this this tool, um, which I'm assuming you've learned from many years and many hats. Absolutely. But this tool is, is, is so empowering. Yeah. And I think that's what, you know, cooking, that's what recipe books and cooking should be all about, really. It should be about educating people, you know, to a level where, recipe books become redundant you know wouldn't that be wonderful if if people were so informed and and, and so practiced in cooking and so engaged in home cooking that you know that, that it, it would put me out of a job it would put Ottolenghi out of a job it would put Jamie Oliver out of a job but I'm sure they'd be really really happy about it and I think that's something that has come from my training with Jamie is that you know it's all well and good to give someone a recipe but if you don't empower them with you know the skills and the confidence to actually you know work things out a little bit beyond that then then you're giving them something something you know that's not very dynamic at all yeah i I don't think anyone would be out of a job because what i think it does is create this revolution and obviously you know from jamie's work that he has created some revolutions but you empower somebody with with the skill set i'm going to take mexican food because i know you you dabble in it having lived in california and there isn't that um, kind of cuisine in, in the UK but if you know how to make it and you teach someone else how to make it there will be a clamoring for that kind of cuisine, that kind of food Absolutely. and then hopefully those restaurants will yeah. open. I'm crossing my fingers for that because <laughs> London needs some amazing Mexican restaurants and you know there's there's a taste for it British people love Mexican food but unfortunately the the delicacy and the sleight of hand that people have with mexican cooking here doesn't exist really in the uk so i think you're right i think you know these recipe books are important to just sow that seed initially and give people ideas because i don't i don't i think 90 percent of people probably don't follow a recipe word for word but they do become inspired and they do you know they, they do read and hear about new ingredients and if you know, the effect is just to make one small change in your diet or to try cooking some Mexican food, then, then you know, that's incredible. Thank you so much for being on. And please, please get a modern way to eat. And, you know, go for the recipes, but stay for the revolution. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You've been listening to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. 
hope to have you back here next Tuesday at three. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.